Podcastle, episode 253, for March 26th, 2013. Virtue's Ghost, by Amanda M. Olson. Rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Anna Schwind, your host and co-editor. I'm pleased to be able to share with you that Dave and his wife had their baby. Everyone is happy and healthy. Congratulations, Dave and family. As he's mentioned, he's taking a step back from the hosting end of our show in order to be the supportive dad you all already know he is. But I'm sure he'll be taking a peek at the forum from time to time, so you can share your well wishes there. Many of us have been affected by the economic downturn, as it's termed, which means many of us are intimately acquainted with the job search process, including interviews. I have always been a little mystified by the standard strengths and weaknesses interview question. First of all, I think probably everyone lies. My weakness is my utter dedication to my employment. Or, I'm obsessively organized. I don't know what the point of asking the question is, unless it's to make sure the person has minimally rehearsed for their appearance as an interviewee, which... It seems to me one could tell by their clothing and whether they get there on time. But anyway, this question confuses me most of all because it seems like an unnecessary binarization of the personality. I've always believed my strengths are my weaknesses put to good use, and my weaknesses are my strengths gotten a little out of hand. I am, for example, extraordinarily direct, and this can be great, but... It can also suck. At my best, it's refreshingly honest and without subterfuge. At my worst, it's blunt and rude and people are put off by it. It's the same character trait. I am the same person when the approach works well and when it works poorly. The key comes in knowing when to just STFU and when to speak my mind. And that's just discernment which in my case has been largely acquired through experience. Neither a strength nor a weakness, just the fact that I've been around a while. Today's story is Virtue's Ghost, a take on virtue and vice that I hope you'll find entertaining. Virtue's Ghost was written by Amanda M. Olson, a writer from Wisconsin and former student of the Alpha Writers Workshop. The story first appeared in Beneath Ceaseless Skies in July 2012 and was her first published piece. It is read to you today by Amanda Fitzwater, a longtime Podcastle friend from the Antipodes. Amanda has not only read for Podcastle before, Miniatures 35 and 64, and Episode 129, Ian McHugh's excellent song dogs, but she was also Podcastle's first sound editor, making it possible for us to bring stories to you, and for Rachel Swirsky to bring stories to you before that. So... There's some history there, and we're delighted to have Amanda back among us. And now, if your strength or weakness will permit it, enjoy the story. Virtue's Ghosts by Amanda M. Olson For two weeks after she moved into our house, no one could convince me that Aunt Victoria was not a ghost. 
with soundless steps. She drifted from room to room in a dress the same blue-grey colour as the pendant around her neck. When she cried, I heard nothing. Once his mother tried to calm her, Aunt Victoria opened her mouth as if screaming and broke a plate against the wall. There was no sound from the glass until it hit the floor. It was ten days past her coming-of-age ceremony when she came to live with us, after a week of urgent telegrams and hushed dining-room conversations between Mother and Aunt Lily. This was a boarding house, Aunt Lily pointed out, and Victoria would take up one of the rooms without paying rent. Aunt Victoria was bad for business. In the early days, more than once, we would find her in a room with a knife, hacking desperately at the ribbon around her throat. It never took the slightest damage, though Aunt Victoria managed to cut her fingers more than once. Other times, she would stand at her window and stare out, causing more than one potential boarder to start at the eerie sight and promptly take themselves over to the less respectable Mrs Harper's. I hid behind Mother's skirts when Aunt Victoria came into the room. I remember wishing that I, too, could move in with Mrs Harper. In a burst of inspiration, Mother let me run rampant in the attic as she cleaned it out for Aunt Victoria, who would be using it as a bedroom to free up the extra one downstairs. Aunt Victoria drifted up to inspect the proceedings. See, Mother said to me, watch how her skirts pick up the dust. Could a ghost do that? Aunt Victoria contorted her face into an almost supernatural grimace. I bravely stuck my tongue out at her. Before Aunt Victoria, I hadn't realised that a virtue could be a curse. In the schoolyard, my friends and I had always pretended at being grown-ups, putting on old necklaces of our mothers and aspiring to the greatness of colours we had heard of or invented. Things like deep purple valour and moss-coloured genius. None of us were excited for the pinprick that would decide our glorious futures. But Tibbs' older brother said that it didn't hurt any worse than a vaccine. We all figured he wouldn't lie about that, although he had gotten much nicer since he'd gotten his pendant. There were boring virtues, like temperance and tolerance, and Tibbs' brother's benevolence, which I didn't want at all. But the world would hardly end if I were given either of them. A virtue like Aunt Victoria's, though. Before her coming-of-age ceremony, Aunt Victoria had wanted to be a singer. Aunt Lily was the one who told me this. Aunt Lily's pendant was a pale yellow colour that became almost clear in the sunlight so even a small girl could depend on her for accurate information. Aunt Lily liked to tell me that my melodramatic behaviour would one day see me brought up on sedition charges, which I didn't like at all. 
But when she told Aunt Victoria that she would never sing again, Aunt Victoria broke a teacup and fled the room. Later, Mother found her in the garden, throwing small rocks at the side of the house. Life with Aunt Victoria became routine, even with her ghost behaviour, until the night after the 4th of July, when she broke something in the middle of the night. This was odd, because Aunt Victoria usually consigned her vandalism to daylight hours. If left to her own deciding, she would sleep from 8 at night until 2 o'clock the next afternoon. As for me, I had run out of things to do at midnight and seized my chance to be the first on the scene. The sitting room was strange in the dark, all lumpy shadows where the furniture stood, with Aunt Victoria grim and pale like moonlight above it all. Another shadow lay at her feet. For a moment, I became sure she was a ghost, and everyone had been wrong, even Aunt Lily, who could not tell a lie. Then Mother swept in, Aunt Lily behind her, and the flickering light of the candle put everyone back to normal again. Everyone, that is, except the man sprawled on the floor. Mother rushed to the poor soul and determined that he yet lived. Victoria, did you break a vase over this man's head? Aunt Victoria's eyes swept heavenward, and even to my eight-year-old self, it was clear that she was not sorry. She mimed slashing off her hands at the wrists and her head at the neck. I hardly think he meant to harm us, Mother protested. I, on the other hand, had feasted heartily on ghost stories and was not in the least surprised that someone might come to dismember us in the night. But I would have expected the dismemberer to be Aunt Victoria, not the young man who was now coming round to consciousness and whose face was screwed up with pain. He said a word that made Aunt Lily cover my ears, and had Mother insisting that I go back to bed immediately. I pleaded with her not to make me leave, but her scowling attention was solely on the young man. He noticed and smiled at her, but then he swore again because Aunt Victoria kicked him. My name's Brandon, he gasped, looking warily at Aunt Victoria, even though he wasn't speaking to her. As soon as she heard his name, Mother sprang into action. Lily, take Rose to bed, she ordered. Victoria, you too. With that, she whisked the unlucky thief into the study, where there was nothing of value besides the letter opener with the pearl handle and the locked drawer that I was never allowed to touch. She kept letters in that one, the ones that came without a return address. Brandon claimed he had really only come for the silver. Mother, with her virtue of kindness, must have taken pity on him, because he was at breakfast the next morning between her and Aunt Victoria. They put me next to Aunt Lily, 
who looked fit to have a conniption. Brandon seemed oblivious to her ire and complimented Mother on the sausages, slicing each one into small pieces before eating it. He had somehow failed to understand Aunt Victoria's virtue because he addressed her directly after he swallowed his first piece. Unusual hue, that pendant. You must have gotten it recently. I'm afraid I'm not quite up to date with anything outside the reds, although people normally pick me out for charms straight away. It's a new colour, Aunt Lily explained for Aunt Victoria, who seemed to be trying to tear her napkin to shreds in her lap. It's silence. The chaplain had to consult two books to find it when the mage brought in this year's batch. He mistook it for sympathy. It took another three days before they could understand why she went mute when they put it on her. Even the mages who make them don't know what a person's virtue will be, not until the stone is finished. They bring them in on racks for the ceremony, all labelled. We always try to guess from the colour, although it's hard to see from a distance. They sell pamphlets for a penny with the most common colours. I hadn't needed mine in years. They were for babies, I had decided, who were too young to know the difference between reds and blues, although usually people with a son or daughter in the ceremony would buy them, too, as a keepsake. Aunt Victoria made an angry gesture and savagely sliced her toast into two halves, buttering them with a fury that suggested she saw the Major's face in one and the chaplain's in the other. Aunt Lily scowled. I wish it had been sympathy too, dear. You could certainly do with a bit of it. They should really have a woman reading the colours. Men have absolutely no eye for them. Everyone knows that sympathy is lavender. I didn't know that, Brandon volunteered, to which Aunt Lily responded with a knowing look and a case-in-point gesture with her fork. Our grandmother was sympathy, Aunt Lily said, loveliest woman you've ever seen, if a bit melancholy, very popular with the neighbourhood. She always said that it was for the best. She'd been a cold and calculating child. Aunt Victoria bit into her toast and chewed it, staring grimly over my head as though I were the ghost and she the haunted one. You always were too loud, Aunt Lily told Aunt Victoria. Victoria thrust herself from the table and, without pushing in her chair, left the room. Her dress caught on the door frame, but she paid it no mind and let the fabric tear. Aunt Lily sighed. That silk will run, and so much for another month's rent. Mother looked ready to burst thunder and lightning. Her pendant almost seemed to glow. It isn't as if I said something untrue, Aunt Lily said. Her voice shook a little. Brandon looked between Aunt Victoria's second slice of toast and the door. He snatched the toast so fast that I was the only one who saw. This was our new boarder. 
and it seemed he had his bright charm pendant to thank for it. He had no funds with which to pay rent, and with Mother off during the days for suffragette rallies and meetings with the Women's League, she soon hit upon a solution that Brandon found completely agreeable. What do you think? she asked me, having sat me down on the floral explosion of a sofa in the sitting room for this purpose. How would you like Brandon to stay with you while I go out for the day? I certainly wasn't opposed. Aunt Lily flipped open her lace fan, waving it to better supply herself with air. You're hiring a man as a governess. Justine, you have gone out of your wits. Aunt Lily had been gifted with scrupulous honesty, but I heard someone mention once that she had always been cantankerous. That part wasn't from the virtue. The virtue just kept her from lying. And I should leave her with Victoria, Mother suggested angrily. It was the one time I heard her lose patience with her youngest sister. The man has no morals, Aunt Lily sniffed. Are you sure they didn't give you gullibility? Aunt Lily might have been more fun if she lied sometimes. I had to ask Brandon what gullibility meant. I didn't like the answer. For reasons I didn't understand, Aunt Victoria always stayed around while Brandon and I played. She did have a tendency to drift into rooms with people in them, and given that her other option was Aunt Lily, I shouldn't have been surprised. She was unusually well-behaved around Brandon. That is, she wouldn't direct her ire at anyone else as long as he was in the room. He would include her in our conversations, as though she were sitting down to play games with us and not standing in a corner looking eerie. It wasn't long before she did start sitting with us. We were drawing that day, and I was practising horses, while Brandon told me a story that ended in him getting away with quite a lot due to his natural charm. He had a whole repertoire of those stories. I hope I get a virtue like that, I said when he finished. It was then that Aunt Victoria reached out and knocked my pencil box from the table. My usual response to such behaviour was to stick out my tongue and go pick up whatever it was of mine she'd displaced. Brandon's chair scraped against the floor as he lurched to his feet. For God's sake, Victoria! She launched into a series of sharp gestures that proclaimed her innocence and blamed me. She hasn't done anything, he said, and even if she had, you could try to tell her... You can write, can't you, if it comes to that? I think you just like making a show. You can't perform in a concert hall, but by God, you can have fit to excess around your family. Aunt Victoria drew back her hand, as if she would slap him, and I shrieked, because there had to be some sound made. Otherwise, it would be like nothing at all had happened. She did not slap Brandon, 
but spun around so only I could see her eyes grow wet, almost to tears. Don't yell at her, I said to him. Show me how to draw a horse again. I've offered him my pencil and paper, but he was too much taller than me to notice. I'm right, Victoria, he said. She flung her arm out, pointed at me. I pieced this together the only way I could. I can too, Reed, I cried. I read very well for my age, having practically devoured books of all the most sensational ghost stories I could convince Mother to buy for me. Until Aunt Victoria came, of course. Then my habit was discouraged. None of these people have done anything to wrong you, Brandon said. I haven't. Aunt Victoria was not impressed. Oh, the... right. Look, maybe I was going to take the silver, but I haven't, have I? While staring at Brandon, Aunt Victoria stood on one foot and made a sweeping motion at his legs. You haven't got a leg to stand on. I giggled. They both sighed, and Brandon laughed. Aunt Victoria joined in, in her spooky way. Brandon stopped laughing, and, in the silence that followed as she fought to control herself, simply watched her. She must have thought he had a point, after all, because after that, she really knocked anything over at all. Aunt Victoria guessed before I did that something was amiss with Brandon, although at the time I was convinced that she was sweet on him. She had taken to following him around at times when he wasn't watching me, often dragging me along. She would press a finger to her lips, then grab my wrist and pull me after her. There were small sounds that I had never quite appreciated before Aunt Victoria started the Let's Spy on Brandon game. The crush of dewy grass underfoot, the sound of my own breath. So long as Aunt Victoria held on to me, these vanished. I wasn't sure how much I minded. I had developed my own fascination with Brandon, the kind of idol worship that is specifically set aside for eight-year-olds to do with as they please. I never truly suspected we'd catch him at anything. Aside from his unorthodox arrival, he had never done anything the least bit criminal. One morning, just as Mother was leaving to do her work with the Women's League, two men approached the door. One of them showed a badge that was not local police, but some higher-up authority in the government. They introduced themselves as Inspectors Lofton and Lee, and they were looking for a particular young man. Mother said she had not seen anyone of that sort. But that night, after I was meant to be in bed, I sneaked down the hall for a glass of water, only to find that Mother and Aunt Lily were awake, sitting at the kitchen table with a lamp lit between them. They'll come back to ask me if they think of it, I heard Aunt Lily say. When their other leads run dry, I say, 
send him along. Where? Mother asked. I heard the soft, dry sounds of her hands ringing with worry. Aunt Lily sighed. You're the one who can lie, Justine, not me. I realised then what I should have known from the outset. There are plenty of thieves in the world who come to steal silver, but they steal silver because, for some reason, they need it. Brandon had come to us with neatly trimmed hair and a shirt whose only damage came from climbing through the sitting room window. He just wasn't the sort to become a burglar. After that night, I began to notice other things, like Aunt Lily and how she wasn't saying anything about our lack of new boarders. I noticed the small things that Brandon did every day, how Mother had given him a room at the back of the house, how he would stay slightly away from the front windows, how he never went outside. Brandon was a criminal, but we weren't letting him stay simply because of Mother's kindness or because everyone thought I needed looking after. Maybe his arrival hadn't been an attempted burglary at all. We weren't sheltering a clumsy thief. We were harbouring a fugitive, someone who had done something worse than stealing. In a way, Aunt Lily might have had a point in her sermons about gothic novels leading to a depraved mind. The conversation I had overheard led me not to fear and nerves, but to a kind of romantic fascination with this figure in our household who had taken on a new air of mystery. Now I became a willing partner in Aunt Victoria's game of Let's Spy on Brandon. More than that, I would instigate it. I wanted to know what he had done. The morning we found out, it was because of me. I pulled Aunt Victoria into the backyard to spy with me through the window. It was relatively early, but Brandon was already awake. He didn't notice us. He was looking in the mirror on his wall, performing a routine in which he would run his fingers through his hair and then scowl and repeat the exercise. Aunt Victoria was unimpressed. For me, I hadn't realised that looking like a charming rake was something one had to work at. Then, quite casually, he unfastened his pendant and laid it on the bedside table. I expected Aunt Victoria to fly at him, flinging silent insults and possibly small objects, but she didn't. She dropped down onto the grass with no mind for her skirts. I protested without a sound that she was twisting my arm until she abruptly let me go and my voice rang out into the morning. Toria, why hasn't he got... I gasped and ducked beneath the window, but it was too late. We'd been seen. Brandon leaned out the window, not even bothering to replace his fake pendant. You too can now have me put in prison for years, did you know? He was trying to be his usual self, 
but his voice had a tension in it that belied the attempt at lightness. This was, I thought, because he was not really a charming person at all. He had not gone to his coming-of-age ceremony and was still a child carrying his worst flaw uncorrected. I couldn't even formulate words to describe the magnitude of this deception. You lied, I said at last. Aunt Victoria stared off across the yard, biting her lip. I know what you're thinking, Brandon said quietly. We already knew you were a criminal, I said, so don't worry, it's not... It's not your fault, he told Aunt Victoria. I had my parents' help. I was 14. You couldn't have done anything to prevent... She shook her head. Everything she'd ever cared about had been taken from her, and now she knew that if she'd been someone else, somewhere else, she might have had a choice. The inspectors returned, just like Aunt Lily said they would. This time, they came into the house without asking permission. We have reason to believe that you're sheltering a criminal, ma'am, said Inspector Lofton, while Inspector Lee handed her the search warrant. We won't trouble you far. We'd just like to ask one question of Miss Lily Howell. If she answers to our satisfaction, we needn't even bother following up on the warrant. Mother's reply was cool and reasonable. If there is a question to be asked, you may just as well ask it of me. I am the owner of this house, as your warrant should show. She turned to me. I was frozen in place at the foot of the stairs, having come down when I heard the knock at the door. Rose, go upstairs and fetch your Aunt Lily. But, she interrupted me, and Mother never interrupted me. Go, Rose. Aunt Lily was not upstairs. She was in the pantry, making the list for the week's shopping, like she always did on Sunday evenings. I bumped into Brandon at the top of the stairs. He had been telling me one of his stories when the knock had come at the door, but he knew better than to go down with me. He had heard everything, though, and he knew as well as I did what they were going to ask Aunt Lily and Aunt Lily couldn't lie. Upstairs, I whispered. Go hide with Aunt Victoria. He looked warily up at the stowed ladder that led to her attic bedroom. It was the only place I could think of. I hoped Aunt Victoria was still awake. I ran dutifully to Aunt Lily's bedroom, checking under the bed and in the closet, so I could tell Mother and the inspectors that I couldn't find her. I looked everywhere, I said. Where could she be, Mother said, but the inspectors were on to her. I didn't like the look of them at all, so much taller than even Mother, and dressed in suits of black. I tore back up the stairs, and followed Brandon into the attic, clambering up the ladder as fast as I could to slip in before either of them lowered the trap door. Aunt Victoria closed the door behind us and gestured 
for help moving a trunk over it. A brief silent argument ensued, wherein Brandon maintained that this would only get everyone into more trouble when they found him. She suggested the window, but there was a third inspector outside, waiting with the carriage they had come in. For a moment, the silence was so loud that I understood why my aunt would break plates to escape it. Brandon sat down heavily on the floor next to Aunt Victoria's bed. I scrambled over to sit next to him, not knowing what else to do. There was nowhere else to hide. Brandon suddenly began to speak, under his breath. He already knew how dangerous it was, but something in or beyond this moment seemed to compel him. I was 14 when my parents sent me away, he said. I lived with my grandparents for two years, and they pretended I was younger. I was small for my age, it was easily done. And when my father came to fetch me back, he'd had the false pendant made. We told everyone I had come of age out in the country, which was true, and everyone simply assumed, I made a mistake telling someone... I thought she, but she didn't. They wanted me to go through the ceremony the next year. I couldn't stand the thought of that weight around my neck, never been able to take it off. And I'm sorry to both of you. Though I tried to be quiet, I was still at the age where I was too small to help crying. And Aunt Victoria wrapped her arms around me so that I didn't have to. Brandon fell silent as well, and for a little while, the only sound was his breath in the darkness. The stairs creaked, just once, and then, That is my sister's room, Aunt Lily cried. Gentlemen, I ask you, just what are you implying? Aunt Victoria let go of me and leapt towards her writing desk, where she scrawled something in pencil, following it with one vehement mark, an underline. She shoved the scrap of paper into Brandon's hand. He read it, and as the trapdoor swung open, he squeezed his eyes shut. The paper fell to the floor. I read it later. It does not determine who you are. The arrest was quiet. Brandon went down the stairs between the two men and he left the house in front of them. As they rode away, none of us said anything, not even Aunt Lily, though it was perhaps an opportunity for a word about morals. Soon after that, Aunt Victoria disappeared. She took a single bag with her, leaving behind most of her things, and a cryptic note for Mother about not letting what she'd said be a lie. One of our neighbours later claimed to have seen her at the train station, carpet bag at her feet, notepaper and pencil in hand. Aunt Lily was the first to notice, on Sunday, that the silver candlesticks were missing. And
welcome back. Mmm, those words taste just as good as they did the first time. Do you remember when Dave and I first started running PodCastle? We had a month where we let our fabulous slusher, Anne Lecky, steer the castle and pick all the stories. It was February 2010, and she picked some great ones, including the first of PodCastle's regular Hereward and Fitz stories by Garth Nix. Well, here we are, three years and a few months on, and we've done it again. Only Anne is quite busy these days, so we've asked a variety of other people to choose the stories this time. Starting next week and throughout April, you'll be hearing from Alistair Stewart, Tina Connolly of Toasted Cake, Marguerite Kenner and Graham Dunlop of Cast of Wonders, and we'll round out the guest editor month with the wonderful M.K. Hobson. It will be a varied and exciting set of stories, and we're delighted that so many people have agreed to help us with this second round of guest editing. Thank you, guest editors, and thank you, listeners, for playing along when we experiment. Feedback this week is for Podcastle episode 247, The Three Feats of Agani by Christy Yant, read by Stephanie Morris. The story was well-received, and listeners seem to enjoy, as I do, the unfolding of the inevitable disaster. Devoted135 said it like this, Oh man, this culture's about to get their boats rocked so hard. And Fire Turtle echoed the sentiment, saying, The whole time I was like, Oh lady, STFU, because you so are going to be the beginning of the fourth feat. Thank you for your comments. Drop by and let us know what you thought of today's story at forum.escapeartists.net. If you like what we're doing, consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast going, so we can bring you new forays into fantasy fiction, week after week. Also, if you know others who would enjoy listening to our stories, tell them about us. Spread the good word. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, Dave Thompson, and myself, Anna Schwind, Thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with a different story. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Abraham Lincoln said, It has ever been my experience that folks who have no vices have very few virtues. <laughs>